Where are we going? Welcome to this exclusive podcast produced by Spirit Watch Ministries that will show where life in our darkening times is now turning and how you can avoid the detours of deception through the hope of biblical truth. The Lord Jesus in Matthew 24 warned us over two millennia ago and how urgently we need to heed Him now. Our host is Pastor Rafael Martinez, a seasoned Northwest Indiana-based minister, intercessor, and counter-cult apologist who will help you discern the journey of change we're all on as the last day of the last days now winds down. For more information, check out our Facebook page and our website at spiritwatch.org. Now. Here's Pastor Raphael. Hello. Thanks once more for stopping by and for downloading our program podcast entitled, Where Are We Going? I'm Raphael Martinez, a minister in the Church of God Cleveland Movement, and I'm really so glad you took the time to listen in today. This podcast is one of the services of Spearwatch Ministries, which is an outreach of discernment in our deceptive world that has been ongoing since 1993. You can learn more about us at our website, spearwatch.org, and keep up to date using our Facebook and YouTube links there on the page as well. While you're at it, invite all your friends, your enemies, your neighbors, your third cousins, uh, your mother-in-law, and even all point and just about everybody in all points in between to, to also listen in because we're always seeking to get new audiences and we'd appreciate your help. Uh, let people know that uh, Spirit Watch Ministries does have a podcast and we do in- provide some pretty interesting perspectives on the times we live in. Uh, because, as I said, the greatest question people are asking these days about the craziness of our world is, well, where are we going? And that's what our, our podcast really do hope to try to provide an answer to. Now, as I said, our podcast is devoted to providing biblical perspectives on the ongoing plunge of the world into the darkness of spiritual deception, as foretold by Bible prophecy and the history of fallen humanity itself. Now, in today's episode, we're going to have one of our ministry associates, Mike Spencer, via an older teaching tape our ministry produced, provide a great summary on the power of cultic mind control and how it's not just for cults anymore. Mike is one of the Spirit Watch Ministries veterans who traveled all around the Southeast for several years with us, helping us do workshops on the challenge of spiritual deception and cults in churches and a variety of venues all over. He was a great team member and one of the memories of life in Tennessee I value the most. He's still very much alive, although we are actually not working together right now. So here he is with his talk entitled, Understanding Cult Mind Control. Look at what the, this by the way is a photocopy of an actual page from Watchtower Magazine, which is the official publication of the Jehovah's Witnesses. Look at what they've written next to that first arrow. It says, fight against independent thinking and it then goes on uh, this article then goes on to explain what it means by independent thinking independent thinking is making up your own mind about what to believe what do you think of that do you think that it's it's a bad idea for Christians to make up their own mind on what to believe do you think that independent thinking is something that Christians ought to avoid well, that, that is what the Watchtower says. Let me ask you a couple of rhetorical questions. Do you believe it's okay for a Christian to manipulate the mind of another person in order to cause that person to put his faith in God? Is mind control a legitimate technique to use in personal evangelism? Do you believe it's acceptable for a spiritual leader 
say, the pastor of a church or the head of a religious denomination to use psychological tricks as a, as a means of shepherding his flock. I say no, and I believe most of you, if not all of you in this room, would agree with me that the correct answer is no. That's all right. But there are some people in this world, in fact there are people in, in positions of spiritual authority uh, within a few miles of where we are now gathered, who believe that a certain amount of manipulation is not only permissible, but it's actually necessary. These people, these spiritual leaders, care about you. They love you. And I, and I, I mean that sincerely. They, uh, I'm not being facetious, they care about you so much that they are willing to pull your strings, to manipulate your thinking in an effort to help you to make the right decision. And what is the right decision? The right decision is to join their group, to follow their leader, and to embrace their doctrines. In their passionate desire to carry out their divine calling to make disciples of all nations, they have crossed the thin line between persuasion, between persuasion and manipulation. This line between persuasion and manipulation is the dividing line between a legitimate religion and a religious cult. What is a cult? There are two different ways of defining it. One way is a theological definition. Uh, a, a group is a cult that uh, teaches doctrines that are contrary to the historical teachings of tr traditional Christianity. But there's another definition, and that's the one that I'm going to talk about today. And if you will look in uh, your, under your introduction, uh, Roman numeral 1, letter B, and there are some blanks I want you to fill in as, uh, as I read this definition. A cult is any group that uses psychological manipulation to recruit, retain, and control the behavior of its members. Any group that uses psychological manipulation to recruit, retain, and control the behavior of its members is a cult. Now how do you identify whether a group is using manipulation? Uh, do you go up to them and ask them, are you being manipulative? Of course not, they're going to say no. How do you know? Is there an objective test that you can apply? Yes, there is. You simply ask yourself, does this group practice any of Lifton's eight components of cult mind control? And we're going to talk about those, these eight components uh, in the next 40 minutes or so. By the way, these eight components could, could be described as the duck test of a religious cult. Uh, I, don't know, I don't know if you're familiar with the, du the duck test. If it looks like a duck, walks like a duck, if it goes quack, you know, it's a duck. Uh, by the same token, if a group practices any of these eight things, if it, it is crossing the line, it is going into the area of manipulation, and it, no matter how loudly they may protest, 
We are not a cult. We are not a cult. We are not a cult. If they do these kinds of things that we're going to be talking about in just a few minutes, then you are perfectly justified in referring to these groups as a cult. The first component of Lifton's eight components of cult mind control is information control. Information control is designed to cut off the member from all significant outside sources of information. And if you'll fill in your blanks where it says outside, outside sources of information. Ask yourself, does the group in question, number one, does it physically isolate its people from the outside world? This is what Jim Jones did when he took the people out into the jungle in Guyana. And about a thousand people lived and ultimately died in that jungle. He took them out there because he wanted to keep them from being exposed to information from outside sources. Second, uh, failing uh, the ability to physically isolate people, does the group socially isolate people by discouraging the formation of close, long-term friendships with outsiders? Does the leader of the group say that outsiders or people from other groups are of the world? They're people that we shouldn't associate with because they're not like us. They don't, they don't care about us. They don't love you like we love you. If the group does this, it's discouraging the formation of outside friendships. Does the group, number three, keep them busy? Does the leader of the group keep its members on a treadmill of activity? Are there, is there always a Bible study to go to? Is there always a book to read? Always some activity, something to do, constantly, every day of the week? It, it totally monopolizes the time of the cult member. Uh, this keeping of people very, very busy is a way of information control because people are simply too busy to look elsewhere for, for information and they're also too busy to even just stop and sit back and just think and reflect. Why am I doing this? Do I, you know, is what they're teaching me really true? There's no time to pause and ask these questions. You are kept active, kept moving. Uh, picture, picture in your mind a giant hamster wheel and, and, a, and a person running on a hamster wheel, just running, 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 and he never gets anywhere. He, he can't stop. This is what cults do. Does the group, number four, demonize doubt? Does the leader of the group say that if you doubt me, if you doubt my teachings, that is the devil trying to get in your mind. When people, have, when people in cults have doubts, that to a cult member is actually proof that the uh, cult leader is telling the truth because if the cult leader wasn't telling the truth, why else would Satan be trying to plant doubts in his mind? Do you see how that works? Demonizing doubt. Anytime someone has a doubt about the leader, he interprets that as an attack of Satan. Number five, does the group strongly discourage the reading of critical literature? Is literature which criticizes the group, is that banned by the leader? Does the leader say that critical literature is of Satan? Why is it of Satan? Because it causes doubt. Six, does the group discourage contact with former members of the group? Are ex-members of the group uh, considered to be evil people, ungodly people, people you don't even want to talk to? 
This is what cults do. This is this is what virtually all religious cults do. Former members are the most dangerous people to a cult leader. <laughs> Seven, does the group practice incremental disclosure? Does it have insider doctrines that it attempts to conceal from outsiders or potential converts? Uh... Some cults have doctrines that are so outrageous, so unbelievable, that you have to actually be under a fair degree of control to believe them. Uh, a classic example of this would be uh, uh, Mormonism. Some of their teachings are very outrageous, but they conceal them from outsiders. They conceal them from new converts. So ask yourself that question. If you're getting involved in a group, does this group uh, conceal its doctrines, its, its main doctrines from the outside world? The overall effect of, of information control is uh, to restrict any negative information about the group. Uh, picture, picture a giant funnel, and, and at the bottom of the funnel is a wire screen. And you pour the information into that, that funnel in the top, and it flows through that screen, and all the impurities are filtered out. All the negative things are filtered out. That wire screen is the cult leader. He filters out everything negative about his group so that the only thing that the, that the prospect or the member ever hears is positive, good, glowing, wonderful things about the group. This is the reason why people who are involved in cults uh, have such a, a high idealistic view of their own group. This is why, why they have stars in their eyes, why they think that their group is the most glorious, greatest, wonderful thing in the earth. The reason is because they've been subjected to information control and they have been made to hear only positive things about the group. The second way that cults uh, manipulate people is something called mystical manipulation. Mystical manipulation, under uh, letter B, is the stage-managed revelation from God, quote-unquote, which is designed to make the member or the prospective member accept the group's leadership as God's official representative. Basically, what you have when you're, when you're dealing with uh, mystical manipulation is you have a <laughs> setup in which the leader inserts himself in between you and God. The leader is God's mediator, God's channel of communication. God gives his truths to the leader, and then the leader passes it on to you. God does not speak directly to you in a cult. You must submit to the leader in order to hear from God, because the leader is enlightened. The leader has a special knowledge, the special anointing. Uh, he has been, has been chosen by God as his mediator or his representative. Now, there are a couple important things to remember about mystical manipulation. When I say leader, usually it's, it's one person, a single charismatic individual. But, but sometimes, in some groups, it can be a small group of people who uh, function as the leadership of the group. Uh, an example of this would be Jehovah's Witnesses. They don't have a, one man at the, you know, who is the head man. They've got a small ruling council known as the governing body. And they are the leader 
of the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. They are the ones who are in between God and you. Another thing to remember about uh, mystical manipulation is that absolute faith in the leader is mandatory in all cults. To doubt the leader is to doubt God. Why? Because everything that the leader says, he got from God. To believe in the leader is to believe in God. Again, for the same reason, because everything the leader says comes from God. You can only serve God by serving the, the leadership of the group, by submitting yourself to the leader's authority. Now, there are various ways in which cults uh, set up this mystical manipulation in, uh, uh, in practice. One way is what I refer to under uh, number two, uh, small a, is the invitation. Let me show you how that works. Kevin, I can see you're a sincere man. I can see that you really care about the things of God. And I, I really believe that, that you have a sincere heart. But I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you this book, and I'm going to let you read this book for the next week. And, and if your heart is right, God will reveal to you that this book is the truth. Now, what I've just said masquerades as a test of this book. Supposedly, Kevin is going to be testing this book to see if it is the truth. In reality, it is not a test of the book at all. It is a test of Kevin's heart. Remember what I said. I said, if your heart is right, God will reveal to you that it is the truth. Now, if Kevin accepts the book, it's because God's revealed it to him. If Kevin rejects the book, the book is still true, but Kevin has an impure heart. He has a bad heart because, because he has rejected God's book. There's no way that you can reject the book by this test. It, is, it masquerades as a test of the book, but Kevin is really having his heart tested. And, of course... Kevin, a sincere guy, likes to think of himself as a, as a person who wants to serve God, who loves God. He doesn't want to be accused of being insincere, so he's going to be highly motivated to accept the book that I give him as being from God. That's one way cults do it. Another way is the, the prediction or the prophecy under letter B. And this is the prophecy where the, uh, the cult uh, person comes up to his prospect and says, Now, Kevin, you've been studying with us for, for a few months now, and there's something I really need to tell you about. Your friends and your family, uh, you know, Satan will, try to will use them to try to stop you from studying with our group. And you don't need to let Satan win the victory. You need, when, when your friends and family come to you and try to stop you, you need to reject what Satan is trying to do. Now obviously, if, if Kevin's friends and family find out that he is getting involved in a religious cult, what are they going to do? 
they'll try to stop him. They'll come to him, and they'll, they'll try to persuade him. They'll, they'll be passionate in their attempt to stop him from getting involved in this group. But what is, what is that going to do? That's just going to confirm what the cult leader has said, or what, what the, uh, the, the recruiter has said. The recruiter will end up looking like some kind of prophet, because he accurately predicted what Satan would try to do. This, this, by the way, will drive a wedge between Kevin and his family and his friends, because he will see his family and friends as being tools of Satan, and then he will start to look at the group and the recruiter as somebody who is a prophet, somebody who is being, being led by God and uh, inspired by God. Key question to ask yourself, uh, number, under number three on the first page, in this group is the leader's will for all practical purposes treated as if it were God's will? Is doubting the leader the practical equivalent of doubting God? If so, then mystical manipulation is in effect, and this setup, this you know, God leader you setup, has been uh, implemented. The third way that cults manipulate people uh, under C is the demand for purity. This is not just exhorting people to live holy lives, but constantly telling the member that he is flawed, impure and in need of cleansing. Flawed, impure, and in need of cleansing. Ask yourself the question, does the leader constantly criticize me, often in subtle ways? Does he constantly question the condition of my heart or my inner motives? Does the leader urge me to seek purification through more diligent participation in the group's activities and prescribed rituals? which is basically a form of works righteousness. You've got to purify yourself by trying harder, by doing more, by, by working to serve the leader to a greater extent. If so, then this person is probably manipulating you through the demand for purity. The ultimate goal of demand for purity is to make the member feel guilty, ashamed, and unsure of his status before God. This makes him more pliable more willing to accept the suggestions of the leader. The average cult member does not trust his own judgment in spiritual matters. He is unable to feel good about himself on a personal level. He's unable to feel good about his personal relationship with God. And he can only experience a feeling of acceptableness to God by identifying himself more or less completely with a pure cause, the pure group, or the pure leader. The individual identity of the cult member is suppressed and it is replaced with the cult clone who is pure because he is a part of the pure God-approved entity, which is the cult. Uh, this, is, this is the reason why when you talk to a cult member that it's, it's, when you talk to one cult member, it's almost like every cult member you talk to of that same group has the same personality. They all kind of respond in the same way. They, they, they seem to talk the same way, act the same way. Many times they even, they even wear the same you know, kind of clothing, the same kind of haircut. Uh, it, is, it is a total identification with the group because they can't feel good about themselves and their relationship on a personal level. They have to identify with the group to be pure. Fourth method of mind control, the cult of confession. 
In cults which practice this element of mind control, all sins must be confessed to the group's leadership. Sometimes this confession takes place in a group setting. Mutual confession of sin in a group tends to create a sense of intimacy and group cohesion. Uh, this is, by the way, the same kind of thing that, that you have in um, groups like Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, in some, in some contexts, this kind of thing is legitimate. This helps people to overcome you know, problems, to, to share their concerns within a group. But when it is used as a tool for keeping people in a false religion, it is unacceptable. Second, when the member confesses his failings, the cult leader gains insight into the member's deepest thoughts, fears, and personal weaknesses. This then becomes a powerful tool which enables the leader to manipulate the member, largely through the use of guilt and shame. Finally, third, re repetitious confession can often be an expression of arrogance in the name of apparent humility. This is why cult leaders will sometimes themselves confess to minor sins, minor failings. This expression of humility only serves to elevate the leader's spiritual status in the eyes of his followers. And it, it is very warm in here and I know it. <laughs> but uh, let's carry on. Fifth method of, of cult mind control, fifth thing that cults do, is called sacred science. Sacred science is the exclusive claim to have the absolute truth of the universe. This is not just claiming that Christianity is true versus Islam or Hinduism, etc., but rather it is claiming that one's particular group, one's particular sect or leader, has an exclusive monopoly on the truth. All other groups are in darkness or have only partial truth. This would be as if the Church of God would say that we are the only ones that have the truth and the Assemblies of God are, are false religion, uh, Church of God of Prophecy is a false religion, Baptist Church is a false religion. It would be as if we were doing this. That would be uh, sacred science. But This is what cults do. In, uh, in pseudo-Christian cults, there is often a claim to have restored and that's a very key word, restored the true Christian faith of Jesus and the Apostles that has been lost for centuries. Uh, both of the two largest cults in the world are uh, what would be called restorationists. They claim that they are the restoration of the true Christian faith. Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses both claim this for their own group. Uh, groups which practice sacred science normally attempt to present their views as scholarly or scientific. Invariably, the evidence they present will not stand up under careful scrutiny. Often the data is altered, faked, or quoted out of context to create a misleading impression. Uh, you not only have to be sacred, but you've got to be scientific in this modern age. You've got to show that your doctrines are truly supported by the findings of science. Generally, with sacred science, there is also a claim by the leader uh, that he has received his doctrines by some form of divine enlightenment. Some leaders will claim that they are prophets. Some will claim that they are God's channel or God's mouthpiece. Uh, some will claim that God gives them new light. Various, various uh, 
terminology that they'll use, but they all claim to be, uh, to almost always claim to have some form of divine enlightenment. Loading of the language, a sixth method of, of mind control. This involves repetitively using words and phrases that have been loaded with new meanings and new associations. Continuous use of loaded language within the group setting sets up mental connections in the member's mind which always causes the cultist to think in certain ways. Loaded language can also be used to form a psychological barrier against the cult member thinking in non-approved ways. There are a couple of typical examples of loaded language terminology that I'd like to share with you. One of them, under letter A on, on page 3, is the truth. The truth. Many cults repeatedly use the truth as a synonym for the name of their sect or as a synonym for their doctrinal system. The book that I was uh, trying to indoctrinate Kevin with a moment ago is a Jehovah's Witness book, and it's called The Truth That Leads to Eternal Life. Jehovah's Witnesses take this title seriously. This, this is the literal truth to them. This is the truth that leads to eternal life. This book, if you accept this book, you have accepted the truth that leads to eternal life. If you reject this book, you have rejected the truth. They're not the only group that does this. Many groups do this. Mormons do this constantly, uh, affirming over and over that their doctrine is the truth, the truth, the truth. This sets up a mental connection in the mind, and it makes it virtually impossible for the group member to even conceive of questioning the group or any of the group's teachings, since the group and its teachings are, by definition, the truth. Uh, another example... The word apostate, apostate. This is the term that many cults use to identify anyone who has left the group for any reason. Repeated use of this term conditions the members to routinely regard all ex-members as enemies of God. If you leave the group, you are an apostate and it makes you an enemy of God automatically. In cults, the use of the designated loaded language terminology is mandatory. If you'll fill in your blank where it says, in cults, the use of designated loaded language is mandatory. Failure to use the approved terms when conversing with other members of the sect is often a cause for disciplinary action. But number three, cultists sometimes have to be trained. This is very interesting. Sometimes they, yes. Uh, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll deal with that uh, in the question and answer. But uh, I, that's a very good question. And I'll, uh, it's, it's a hard concept to grasp, and I, and I, will, I will address that. Uh, but cultists sometimes have to be trained by their leaders to not use loaded language when they're witnessing to prospective converts. In effect, the cultist becomes bilingual. He uses one set of terminology, one way of expressing himself when he is talking to other members of the group, but he uses a different vocabulary when uh, he is talking with people who are outside the group. 
Finally, in uh, number four, under uh, loaded language, some cults take special pride in their unique vocabulary, regarding it as one of the identifying marks of the true faith. G, doctrine over person, the next component of cult mind control. Doctrine over person occurs when the leader's doctrines are enforced to the detriment of the individual member's welfare. If you'll fill in your blank, welfare. In cults, the doctrine does not exist to serve the people. The people exist to serve the doctrine. This is in direct contrast to what Jesus said in Mark chapter 2, verses 25 through 27. Jesus said, God did not make man for the Sabbath. He made the Sabbath for man. In groups which practice doctrine over person, there are no minor or non-essential doctrines. All doctrines are major. All doctrines are strictly enforced to the nth degree. The authority of the cult leader is at stake on every doctrine. If, if the cult leader was to allow the, the, the member to use his own judgment on even the smallest doctrine, that would be calling into question this whole setup in which God gives the truth to the leader and the leader passes it on to you. See, if you question the leader on even the tiniest degree, that destroys the whole system. So they have to enforce the doctrines to the nth degree. Fully indoctrinated cultists are often willing to sacrifice their lives and the lives of their loved ones rather than disobey one of the leader's directives. And uh, under number four, I've given some examples of doctrine over person. Uh, cults that advise against seeing doctors for any reason. Uh, there are some faith cults that say that if you go to a doctor, that's a lack of faith. And uh, people, have been no people have been known to die for listening to people preach that kind of message. Jonestown, Guyana, mass suicide. Jim Jones told his people that they needed to drink that that poison Kool-Aid and they drank it and they all died. Heaven's Gate, Marshall Applewhite, the leader of that group out in uh, San Diego, California uh, had his people uh, take the poison because they thought uh, that uh, this this UFO coming behind Hale-Bopp Comet was going to pick them up and, and you know take them off into space. Uh, cults that pressure their members not to attend college or send their kids to college. Uh, do, you, do you have to attend college? No. But there are some groups that actually pressure people to not go to college, saying that it's a, it's a sin to go to college. College is, a, is an evil place. You will pick up all sorts of bad ideas. You must not go to college. If you go to college, then you're, you're in violation of God's will for your life. Groups that bar members from seeking employment in certain occupations. There are some groups that say that you can take a job in this uh, situation, but you can't take this job. Uh, certain occupations are bad. Certain occupations are wrong. It's wrong to uh, serve in the military. It's wrong to uh, uh, work in a convenience store that sells cigarettes. Uh, now, you may personally, as a matter of conscience, believe that it's right or wrong for you to do a certain thing, but when you start to impose those things on others that, that you do not have a clear biblical mandate on, you're engaging in doctrine over person. Another example, Jehovah's Witnesses banned vaccinations in the 1930s and 1940s. They banned organ transplants 
from between 1967 and 1980, and they currently uh, ban blood transfusions. How many people have died because they didn't vaccinate their children against infectious diseases? How many Jehovah's Witnesses have died in the 13-year period where they were forbidden to have an organ transplant? How many died from refusing a blood transfusion, thinking it was God's law? Doctrine over person. It doesn't matter what your what your personal situation is. You have to obey the, the what the leader says. Another example is groups that pressure their members to break the law and risk being fined or imprisoned. Some groups uh, have doctrines that are that are literally a violation of the law, and they tell you that you must uh, you must obey this doctrine even though it, it violates the law of the government. That's doctrine over person. Now, of course, you know, if, you know, in some situations, if you live, say, in a, in, a, in a communist country and they tell you to deny Christ, obviously you're not going to deny Christ. I mean, that, that would not be, you know, an example of doctrine over person. But if it's some minor, you know, petty thing that is not really an essential matter of the faith, then uh, it's wise to obey the law of the land, the law of the government. Finally, the last uh, component of cult mind control is dispensing of existence. This is where to be in the group is to have life. To be outside the group is death. Everyone outside the group is considered to be under Satan's control, bound for destruction. Everyone outside the, our little group hates us and wants to kill us. This is the persecution complex that many cults have. And everybody outside our group, our outside our own little uh, sect, cannot be trusted, and they should not be associated with. Phobia indoctrination is a very important part of dispensing of existence. People are told that if they leave the group, they will go crazy. They're told that if they leave the group, Satan will attack them. They will get sick, or they'll have an accident. One of their children might die, etc., most people who are involved in cults are terrified of the prospect of leaving the group. There is, in fact, no honorable way to leave a cult. There's no way out. Cultists who do manage to leave, by, by the way, in phobia indoctrination, usually this is done by way of anecdote. What the leader will say is, he'll say, now Mary, you know, you, you've been thinking of leaving the group, but, but you know, there's this other girl that left, and you know, her name's Jill, and you know, when she left, you know, some terrible things happened to her. She, she had this automobile accident, and, and she was crippled for life. It was because, you know, she had left our group and, and exposed herself to the attack of Satan. You know that they'll tell stories like this, anecdotes, tales. Uh, some some may be true events, some may not be, but they use it as a means of instilling fear in people to keep them from leaving the group. Cultists who do manage to leave, however, are frequently shunned by their friends and family members who are still loyal to the to the leader. The fear of losing all of one's friends is a powerful motivation to stay in the group. Remember what we said about information control. One of the things is that uh, all of your friends are supposed to be people who are in the group. And if you've been in a religious cult for eight or ten years, you may not have any friends outside the group. And if you leave the group, 
you are socially isolated from, from everyone you love, everyone you care about. It's a powerful motivation to stay in the group. Also, the authority of the leader to kick people out of the group is greatly feared by the group's members because to be expelled from the group is to be kicked out of God's kingdom. If you are expelled from the group, you no longer have a connection with the leader, and the leader is your only connection with God. To leave the group is to leave God. Often groups that engage in dispensing of existence will legitimize deception. In many, in many groups, it is okay to lie to outsiders, people who are not in the group, because they are Satan's people. They don't deserve to know the truth. Sometimes uh, cult leaders will actually even lie to their own people for their own good, supposedly for their own good, in an effort to keep them in the group, to keep them from finding out negative information. Uh, finally, under number six of dispensing of existence, illegal activity is often condoned by groups that practice dispensing of existence, since the government is generally perceived as a satanic institution. The government is the enemy. The government is not to be trusted. The government is out to get us. Uh, there are many uh, uh, cults that are kind of like militia-type groups that uh, that really spin all these these elaborate tales about how the U.S. government is building uh, concentration camps to round up all the Christians and, and telling all these really wild tales. This is a form of uh, of dispensing of existence. This is a form of uh, trying to deceive people into uh, staying within their group. I'd like to share with you a few examples examples, actual examples of cult mind control in operation from your second handout and we'll come back to the outline in a moment uh, to share some info about how to uh, break cult mind control but take a look at your um, tell you what, I, don't, I probably don't have time to cover all of this so what we'll do is we will look at the last two pages uh, first one we're going to look at has the Book of Mormon written on it. We will look at the last two pages. Uh, first one we're going to look at has the Book of Mormon written on it. The next to last page. Okay. Okay. Okay, y'all have that? All right, I want you to notice carefully how the Book of Mormon text, Moroni 10.4, reads. Let me, let me go ahead and read, read this uh, in full for you. Moroni, this is Moroni 10.4. This is a Mormon scripture. And when you shall receive these things, namely the Book of Mormon, I would exhort you that you would ask God, the Eternal Father, in the name of Christ, if these things are not true, and if... if Ye shall ask with a sincere heart, with real intent, having faith in Christ. He will manifest the truth of it unto you by the power of the Holy Ghost. This is a classic example of mystical manipulation. If one accepts the Book of Mormon, it is because God has manifested the truth of it. If one rejects the book, 
it is because one did not ask with a sincere heart. There is no way to legitimately reject the Book of Mormon, by or any book for that matter, by using this test. Uh, by the way, this is... Uh, have any of you ever heard of the, uh, the, the fairy tale, The Emperor's New Clothes? Uh, if you'll remember that story, the tailor in that story had this invisible fabric, and he was going to make a suit for the king. And the fabric was so special that only enlightened, intelligent, wise people could see it. Now the king, not wishing to be... Of course, the fabric was fake. There was, there was no fabric there. But the king didn't want to be considered unwise, so the king pretended that he saw it. And everybody in the story uh, pretended that they saw this fabric. This is the technique, the mystical manipulation technique that the tailor used to trick the king. The same kind of thing that the, the Mormons use. Turn to the next page. This is a photocopy of, from the, the flyleaf of a Jehovah's Witness book. This is something that uh, a Jehovah's Witness was witnessing to some fellow named Edward, and, and she gave him this book, and she wrote this inscription in the book. And I'm going to read this to you. Uh, Edward, since you have so, so many relatives who are involved in religion, I feel you may be a bit confused as to who has the true religion. As one of J.W., we feel or know we do have the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the pure language from the Bible. Pray, before you read these four chapters I've highlighted, if your heart is right, notice the if, if your heart is right, Jehovah will open your eyes. You put him first and everything else will be added to you, a wife included. Fondly, Annie. Notice, I want you to notice a couple of things here. Notice Annie's reference to the pure language. The pure language. This is a reference to the uh, loaded language vocabulary spoken by Jehovah's Witnesses, which they regard as a mark of the true faith. Only Jehovah's Witnesses speak the pure language, so they are the, they are the true faith of God. Also, notice the statement, if your heart is right, Jehovah will open your eyes. Compare that with what the Book of Mormon said. Almost exactly the same thing. Almost exactly the same wording. The point I'm wanting to make here is that mystical manipulation techniques work regardless of the doctrinal content of the material that you're presenting. It works for Jehovah's Witness doctrine. It'll work for Mormons, it'll work for Moonies, it'll work for anybody. The, the techniques that I've shared with you are, are, the same, are, are the same things that are used over and over again by religious cults. And, and it, is, it is like a, a broken record. They, they, you, know, you, you go from one cult to, one, to another to another to another. They all use the same basic techniques to recruit and indoctrinate people. Okay, in the, in the, uh, give me about five more minutes to share with you some things about how, how you can help someone undo mind control, and then we will uh, take about ten minutes for questions. Okay, on page four of your outline, five, there are five things you can do to help someone leave a destructive cult. A, build rapport and trust. 
Treat the cultist with genuine love and respect. He's a human being made in the image of God. He deserves our love, our respect. Adopt a curious yet concerned attitude. Tell the cultist you're curious, you want to learn about you know, what, he, what he believes, but you are concerned about his religion. You, are, you, know, you have some doubts, you have some questions. Do not directly attack the leader. That's a controversial point, but the reason is that this guy that's in the cult is so wrapped up in the leader, so identified with the leader, that if you attack the leader, he'll take it personally. It's like you're attacking him. Also, the leader has, has prophesied that he will be attacked by enemies of God. So when you attack the leader, you're just fulfilling the leader's prophecies. And uh, number four, under Bill Rapport and Trust, be patient. Cultists can be very, very frustrating to witness to. B, gather information. Information about the cultist himself, his personal interests, his family, his personal history, how he got involved in the group, etc. Get to know him. Second, gather information about the group, its leader, its history, its doctrines and practices, etc. And three, get, gather information about cult mind control. A book that I want to heartily recommend for you to purchase and read is this book right here. It's called Combating Cult Mind Control by Stephen Hassan. Uh, Hassan has written this from a secular perspective. He is not a Christian. Uh, I believe he's a Jew. Uh, if you can't find this at your Christian bookstore, you might try uh, a secular bookstore or even see if they can order it for you. Outstanding book, wonderful book on this subject. Very, very enlightening. C. Plant seeds of doubt about the group. Ask questions that get the cultists to think about inconsistencies or errors in the group's teachings. A question is always going to be better than a declarative statement. The goal is to get the cultist thinking for himself. If you, if you make a statement, if you say, you're wrong and here's why, the cultist is going, to be, is going to be offended, he's going to be on the defensive. But if you ask him a question, why do you believe this? Or if you show him a scripture and say, well, what do you think the scripture means? How, how do you see the scripture? You can point him in the right direction and you can get the thought processes going in his own mind and without arousing his defenses. Uh, second, share information about the group or the leader in an indirect or non-attacking way. Uh, again, you don't want to directly attack the leader or you'll just, the walls will go up and you'll get nowhere. Third, share with the cultists some general information about mind control, always using other groups as examples. If you, if you come to him and say, your group uses mind control and, and I can prove it, Again, the walls go up, the defenses go up, you're not going to get anywhere. But if you share information about mind control and say, like if you're talking to a Jehovah's Witness and you say, you know, the more, you know I've talked with some Mormons and you know, the Mormons do this, and he starts to recognize that his group does exactly the same thing, that's going to get somewhere with him. He's going to start to connect the dots and to see how manipulative his group is being. D. Promote a new perspective. Testify about what Christ has done in your life. 
testimony is wonderful. It can show him that his group, that 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 the only true Christians are not in his group, that there are real Christians who are not uh, members of his cult or his sect. Second, share with the cultist the orthodox Christian interpretation of the Bible. Show him that his leader's perspective isn't the only way to look at the Bible. Share true doctrines. Third, help the cultist visualize a happy future outside the group. This helps undo the phobia indoctrination. Help, to, help the cultist to see, you know, ask him, what would you be doing right now if you weren't in this group? You know, uh, if he went to college and studied a certain subject, saying, "Have you ever thought about, you know, going back and 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 you know, starting to do that thing again?" Help him to see that that he could have a happy life outside this group, that he doesn't have to be afraid. Finally, under E, pray, pray for any seeds that you plant in the cultist's heart and mind to be watered by the Holy Spirit. Pray that the Holy Spirit would give you the right words to say to the cultists in a given situation. The Holy Spirit will, will bring to your mind the right things to say to the right person. Uh, ask for God's guidance in that. Third, pray that God would bring circumstances to bear in the cultist's life which would cause him to re-evaluate his involvement in the group. God is the one who orders our circumstances. He brings things into our life. He brings situations into our life to help us grow as Christians and as people. The Holy Spirit can do that. Four, pray against any spiritual forces or demons that might be operating to keep the cultist in darkness. And five, pray that the cultist would be ineffective in his witnessing efforts to recruit people into his group. And uh, uh, I'm just going to skip the conclusion about the two personalities of the average cultist because you don't really have time to get into that. Uh, to answer your question about loaded language, it is it is like it is taking a word that has has a basic root meaning, a, dic a basic dictionary meaning, and adding a new meaning onto it, and then using that word over and over again with the new meaning in such a way that the that the new meaning is inseparably connected with the old meaning. For example, the truth. In the normal dictionary, the word the truth simply means that which is true, that which is not false. That's the basic meaning of the word. But the extra meaning that the cult attaches to this, that they picture it like a dump truck. And, and you put, a, say, a giant donut in the back of the dump truck, and you drive the dump truck around with a giant donut in it, pretty soon you start to associate those two things together, the donut and the dump truck. The new definition of the cult, the, 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 the cult's definition of, of itself as the truth is the donut. The dump truck is the dictionary definition of the word. The cult, by calling itself the truth over and over and over and over again, creates a mental connection in the, in the mind of the cult member that, that makes him regard everything his group teaches as automatically true, by definition, because that's just what the truth means. Uh, does that... Look at our leaders as a cult in the 
the sense where we begin to feel that we are subservient to them in doing things and that our focus is on our, our preacher or our pastor where we can't discern things ourselves where, where I mean I, I think that happens yes. in you're, you're absolutely correct themselves on that preacher and not so much on the word of God and the discernment of the Lord. Um, is that not a cultist activity? That, that is ex you're, you're exactly correct. Uh, uh, for, the, for the benefit of the tape, she asked if legitimate, if like, if like that uh, many times there are Christian churches which, although they may be orthodox in their doctrine, actually engage in, in cult-like activities in the sense of manipulation. And again, this goes back to the two different definitions of a cult. You know, w you, know you can define a cult in terms of its doctrines, or you can define a cult in terms of its manipulative practices. And uh, when, a, when a Christian church even though it may be orthodox in doctrine, starts, you know, pulling the strings, starts engaging in some of these uh, eight components of, of control, it is definitely crossing the line, and I believe, personally, that it's in violation of God's will. Thanks for listening today as we explore just where are we going. Our prayer is that you have been encouraged and strengthened, and if necessary, challenged in your daily journey through life. Jesus is coming. You can fall with the night or you can rise with the sun. The choice is yours. You can email us with questions and comments at feedback at spiritwatch.org. And if you need urgent personal spiritual help, email us at help at spiritwatch.org. We look forward to hearing from you. Please follow our podcasting at our Facebook page and our website at spiritwatch.org. This podcast is a production of Spirit Watch Ministries, taking heed that no man deceives you.